This is a Media Lab podcast. Hey, Dave, uh, what would you do if you were a rich man? A rich man? Um, Just a rich man. You know, I've always wanted a really tall house, but like, not wide, just exceptionally tall, like very tall. Like like wayside school? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, as long as it's got a tin roof on the top, I think I'm going to feel good about myself. I just want a bunch of birds. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be talking about the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the roof. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. You're asking me to marry you. Yes, I am. Bring me a ring, for I'm longing to be the envy of all I see. Dave, I am so interested to know what you think about Fiddler on the Roof, but I was thinking. This is a big musical that was released in the year 1971. It has this huge history, and I don't think that we are up to the task of just talking about this ourselves. So I want to bring in somebody that can help. So I'm going to dial the space phone here, and um, let's see see if he answers, Dave. Matt Koplik, is that you? That's me. Hello. Excellent. Thank you so much for answering. This uh, unlisted number uh, that came through on your phone. Yeah, I don't know how you got the number, but congratulations. Matt Koplik, of course, you uh, host a podcast called Broadway Breakdown. I think you're super knowledgeable about musical theater, but maybe you can do a better job of the, like, this is who you are and what it is that you do. Oh, um, well, unfortunately... I am so knowledgeable about musical theater, but I am not knowledgeable about me. Okay. So I don't know if I'll do a great job of describing myself. The podcast uh, used to be with me and my co-host, John Wiscavage, where we would talk about the goings on of theater, probably specifically new movie musicals that were coming out. And John is a working actor, so he was away a lot. So I would have guests come on and talk about like a theater obsession of Mm -hmm. theirs. Uh, And then the pandemic hit and John was not really feeling up to recording anymore. And he said, you know, I want you to keep going with the podcast. Uh, so have at. So I rebranded it. Uh, so people would not feel the pain that I did of having no John. Mm-hmm. So I was like, must, must regroup, must, must do something new. So it's now become a, 
an analysis of the history and legacy of Broadway uh, by narrowing in on specific artists uh, that I think have helped shape it both for better and for worse. Uh, and each artist has a mini series uh, with an episode dedicated to their work in chronological order of when it debuted in New mm-hmm. York. Uh, the first series that we are doing is Stephen Sondheim because how can you not? I'm not yeah. familiar with and his I'd, work, Matt. I'm not quite sure I know who Stephen no, Sondheim come is. <laughs> come on. No, you in particular, yeah, you would have no idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that's that's what it is. And uh, as of the moment that we're recording this episode, the first four have come out, which was uh, up to anyone can whistle. The next episode comes out this week, or at least the week that we are recording yeah. this, which is uh, Do I Hear a Waltz? I don't know when this episode... Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. I think it's either going to be... A little night music. I think it's going to be a little night music coming out when this episode comes out. When this episode comes out? Or the one after, whichever one you're choosing, if you're doing Frogs or if you're going to do Pacific Overtures. Pacific Overtures. So what I, what I, that's sort of the tricky thing. And I've had guests come on and be like, so what's, how exactly does the uh, chronological order go? And it's, um, it's what, uh, whatever debuts in New York with a priority on Broadway. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So even though Assassins came out before Passion, Assassins is coming out after passion because that's when it debuted on broadway and then um so it's gonna be saturday night assassins the frogs and then roadshow those are the last four dave has any of that made sense to you at all (laughs) oh yeah yeah i speak this language most people at least know sweeney like (laughs) sweeney totter into the woods dave Dave is uh he he knows like the big musicals i find um (laughs) and then i go and nerd out about stuff and he's like yeah i'm just talking to a wall at this point i think matt then what we need to start off with this is like the really general question what is your history with fiddler on the roof i want to do like my best may west with a cocktail like how much time do you have Uh, all the time in the world as i said love it uh as I said, I'm a huge musical theater buff, always have been since the you know ripe old age of three. And I come from a family that loves theater and everyone has sort of been involved in theater in some way, never performing or writing. We would always joked when I was the kid, like I was the first person in the family to be in front of the table. Right. Everyone else was always behind the table because I used to perform back in the good old days. And I got to know Fiddler pretty young because my grandfather when he was alive, was an entertainment lawyer. And he, so he represented a lot of actors and writers and producers. And one of his uh, lifelong clients and uh, his best friend up until uh, his death was Jerry Bach, who uh, composed yes. the music for Fiddler on the Roof. Wow. Yeah. So my mom remembers like going to Jerry Bach's house when they were writing Fiddler and hearing like the melody for Matchmaker before it was like really Matchmaker. And my grandfather and my grandmother went to opening night and saw like every new Tevia that came in. I don't think my mom went to opening night because I think she was uh, 11 at the time and was probably not right, allowed. Yeah. And it was also the sixties. And like, you don't bring your kids to things where you want to have fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, filler was always just sort of Canon in my household. And I did do the show. I did a bastardized 40 minute version of the show oh. when I was nine. I was Tevya. I was phenomenal. Oh, the awesome. twist was I was learning how to play violin at the time. Oh, so at the end, perfect. Tevya became the fiddler. <laughs> Whoa. Genius. Just like <laughs> meta. Right. How's that? How's that for a twist? <laughs> I love it. Uh, he was yeah, the fiddler the entire seen... time. <laughs> exactly. It was very M. Night <laughs> Shyamalan. Right, right. Mission Impossible. <laughs> the whole face. time. Yeah. yeah. Rip off the mask. And yeah. Oh, with the what Mission Impossible Two? We can't go on to that because I still don't know what that movie's about. I've seen it three times. Tom Cruise I doesn't know what that movie is about. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's about Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise doesn't know what anything's yeah. about. Yeah, right. It's about Tom Cruise. He's lo- he lost the plot years yeah. ago. Matt is too good to be on this podcast. I finally saw 
live. I saw the movie a couple of times when I was a kid. I always loved the score. And then I finally saw a professional production, which was the one in 2015, 2016. With Alfred Molina? Oh, Danny Bernstein. Okay. No, I didn't see. So I wanted to see the Alfred Molina one. My grandfather, God bless him, was a very judgmental man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And always, you know, especially with Fiddler, very protective. And he was not pleased with that production, the Alfred Molina production. He said it was just simply not Jewish enough. Right. And so he told me not to see it. it he didn't want that to be my first uh, version of it. And then by the time the Danny Burstyn one came around and Jerry had died, he was like, eh, I don't know if it's going to come again after this one in a while. I'll just go see it. So that was the first right. professional production I saw. And then I saw the Yiddish production a few years later. And that's my uh, okay, history. Cool. And, and I guess for like the movie specifically, do you have positive feelings, negative feelings, math feelings? We'll get into yeah. it. I definitely remembered the movie being a lot better. Okay. Uh, I think it's I think it's still a pretty good movie. I I remembered from my youth and the way it was always sort of discussed in the history of musical theater as being a really like one of the best movie adaptations of a stage musical. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty good. But th- there are some lapses for me in this sure. one. Uh, Dave, what is your history of Fiddler on the Roof? I have none. I uh, I know that it exists. <laughs> Um, as we discussed at the outro of the last episode, I didn't even know it was a musical. I, uh, (laughs) I just, uh, knew that, uh, it was out there in the pantheon of moviness and it just never came across, um, sort of my, my scrolling screen life. Yeah. I don't know why actually. I just, yeah, had nothing, no connection. I am, uh, people can't tell by my voice, but I am not Jewish and I am not from New York city. So... Uh, right. It's possible that I just may have culturally not been in my world and uh, yeah, or people that I knew. Yeah, but so you, I got nothing. I suppose. But you do have a history of musicals that you have enjoyed though in your sure. past, correct? Yeah. I mean, I'm from Toronto. So we have, yeah, Toronto's got, you know, Phantom is big because they had the Pantages Theater and uh, Les Mis, Lion King, like all the sort of more recent all the big ones. One, yeah. And, Touring ones. Yeah, like 80s, 90s. Um, and then mostly the musical stuff comes from, yeah, Disney movies or, uh, things of that nature. Um, so, you know, that Andrew Lloyd Webber phase, what is that? Like late eighties into the nineties. That's what was really popular in Toronto. I thought you you meant like everyone goes through an Andrew Lloyd Webber phase. I thought what you meant. (laughs) Everyone absolutely goes through an Andrew Lloyd Webber phase. Actually, yeah, that's Um, probably true. So I used to know uh, this is where I, this is where I proved my merit as a guest. He came in the seventies. Early seventies, the Jesus Christ Superstar, yeah. and then has just stayed. Just stayed. It's just right, stuck Jesus around like <laughs> <laughs> Um And then and Les Mis. So good, people don't always equate him with good stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I knew those two. I actually had the albums. Could sing all the songs by heart yeah. once, and that's really about it. Yeah, I got I got nothing more. Okay, I'm definitely not in this world where you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I mean, but uh, so Dave, you have like a hatred of small towns that has been well established on this show. Yes. Uh, yeah, and I grew absolutely. up in a very small town of uh, 6,000 people. And so my first introduction to literally every Broadway show that I'm a fan of is through the cast albums. And so it was just listening to cast albums. This was almost pre-internet, but I like had internet that was dial up. So I didn't really use it all that much out on the farm. So, uh, definitely I, when I originally got the Fiddler soundtrack, the original Broadway cast album of the Fiddler soundtrack, 
I remember my initial response was like, what is this? Like, I didn't, I couldn't, like, I couldn't really even make sense of like what was going on and what the uh, entire plot was. It should also be said that you're very, very dumb. But there was something about the music. It, 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 it was earwormy enough for me. It's like I, I kept listening to it, listening to it, listening to it. And uh, hilariously enough, even though years later I did read up like what the basic plot structure was for like a good 15 years or so, I didn't really know what the plot to Fiddler on the Roof even was. Um, I could get, I could understand from the songs, like, okay, guy in a town, he's poor, has some daughters, <laughs> they're getting married off, but they didn't really know like the other structure of the show and how it all fit together. I've never seen a production of Fiddler, and this is actually going to be the first time I'm going to watch this movie in full. Uh, I've definitely seen clips from this movie before, specifically if I were a rich man, and Sunrise Sunset, I have seen those clips in like isolation, but I've never actually watched the movie start to finish ever in my entire life. So uh, I know the soundtrack of Filler so well, and yet I have never actually seen a production of Filler on the Roof. So this is going to be fun for me to kind of experience that for the very, very first time. Let's do this. We are going to go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be discussing a little bit more about Filler on the Roof. Dave, do you think we should maybe sing the ad copy this week well it might be tradition tradition yeah maybe we should put a sunrise and sunset on on that idea sunrise. uh welcome to the ad copy section of con Day versus the machine of course we are a proud member of the alberta podcast network locally grown community supported the alberta podcast network promotes and supports alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with alberta based businesses and organizations we have a couple of new sponsors actually this week first is Rumi, you know, with warmer weather comes yard work. Yuck. Am I right, Dave? <laughs> Luckily, we're up here in the spaceship Potemkin. No leaves. And we are, <laughs> and no leaves. That is the one good thing about being in the dark recesses of space. No leaves. With warmer weather comes yard work and lots of it. Prune your trees and shrubs, clean your eaves troughs, replace those drafty windows you notice over the winter. By the way, did you know that eaves troughs is a Canadian word? And if people are listening to us in the US of A, they probably have no idea what we're talking about. They, like, is it just because they use gutter? Gutters. Yeah, gutter. They call it gutters. We use both. It's not British? Eaves? No, it is a Canadian word specifically. <laughs> Canucks. Interesting. Yeah. You can call Rumi to take care of all of your outdoor and indoor spring home maintenance while you fire up the barbecue and relax. Visit Rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, or call 1-844-777-7864 and let Rumi's trusted local experts take care of your yard so all you have to do is enjoy it. Dave, what do you have for me this week? All right. This episode, wait, do I just, yeah, sure. Our episode this week is brought to you by the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival, running online. That's, I shouldn't emphasize, but they put in all caps, running online from May 6th to the 16th. Even though Northwest Fest can't happen in a movie theater this year, does that sound weird? Even though Northwest Fest can't happen in a movie theater this year, they've still put together an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs. In fact, this year, there are a whopping 40 feature films plus 40 short films available for viewing to anyone in Alberta. This is your chance to stream some of the hottest new docs from Canada and abroad, many of which are Canadian, international, or even world premieres. All access streaming passes, ticket packs, and single tickets are available now at northwestfest.com. 
ca. I ran out of breath there. Northwest, <laughs> Northwest, Northwest Fest, Northwestfest.ca. That's a hard, or you, you do it. No, Northwest Fest. Northwest Fest. <laughs> Northwest Fest. Northwest Fest. Weird, Northwest Fest. When you become a singer, you have to know about breath control. Breath. I, we've been watching the voice and they're all like. Be like Topol. Oh. Be like Topol and just yell at God. <laughs> Northwest Fest. Uh, Northwest, Northwest Fest. All right. Well, we have just watched Fiddler on the Roof, all three hours of it. You know, having watched it here just now, Matt, uh, what, uh, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Well, full disclosure, I did watch the movie before we all watched it just now right. with my grandmother to bone up for this episode because I'm a good student. <laughs> and uh, rewatching it just now, yeah, my opinion still holds. I, I remember it being better uh, in my, okay. in, when I was younger. It's not a bad movie. It's not a bad movie. But because um, Fiddler the Musical, as someone who knows it pretty yeah. well, is so indestructible like it the musical itself just so works so well the music is so great the story is so uh universal that even like a semi good version of it is enjoyable my biggest issue with the movie it's my issue with the west side story movie is that it's too long it mm. takes its sweet time getting going and that is not how you do a musical right you have to get it all out there immediately i've been on a few dates where the guy was like that yeah, I have like other small things I could go into, but I'll wait till that just comes organically. <laughs> yeah, in conversation. no, that's, that's fair enough. Uh, Dave, is there anything specific that you wanted to bring up having just just watched this? I liked it a lot. I think I agree there. It's very awkward in some of it, which is a very 70s uh, thing. Like, for example, uh, taking asides or, you know, addressing the audience, breaking the fourth fourth wall. Uh, mm. That stuff felt so off-putting. <laughs> But I can understand, uh, I mean, I think the music's great. The story is incredible. And we've been quipping as we were sitting together texting that we should have watched this immediately after Nicholas and Alexandra because uh, there's something going on with the Re Russian Revolution and sort of the end of that uh, period in Europe that's really drawing a lot of attention in 71. So it's great to get the other side so we don't get an apologist narrative of why the czar was actually a pretty cool guy right. and we get to see how he fucking ruined everybody's lives like a piece of shit so great yeah yeah, yeah. It, it's literally like the 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 response to nicholas and alexandra is fiddler on the roof weirdly enough both nominated for best picture in the same year so here's my thoughts uh, it's, uh, i love this movie like straight up i really really enjoyed it now the thing is like i i had to admit at the very beginning because i've never seen the stage production i do know they've, they've changed some things to adapt it to the movie so that it would be interesting to know if i went and saw the stage version which one i would actually prefer after that but we don't live in that world here currently my fear whenever there is a movie that is adapted from a musical um i get really pretentious about certain things and one of those things is not trying to be cinematic with the material meaning is like you know what? You have the ability to crosscut, change locations uh, at the snap of a finger, do all these other huge things, and you might as well do it because it's a movie. And I found, for the most part, it's not true for every single scene, but for the most part, I thought they actually made it cinematic or feel cinematic, even though you can absolutely 100% tell this is based on a stage show, <laughs> uh, just on, on how they, they frame certain things. Specifically, I'm going to call it one specific moment that I think is phenomenal in this movie which is uh the wedding sequence 
So the wedding has happened, um, and then like the constable and his men kind of come into it, right? And it goes completely silent, and it's like super close up of Topol's face. It's blurred in the background, and you can slowly see his like arm raise up behind him. And it's like, I don't know, that's like brilliant little piece of filmmaking because you know exactly what's happening, what's going on, and why this is such a big moment that's about to happen. And then all hell breaks loose. Huge sound. We're getting into like them beating people up and, and throwing things around. So um, those are the moments that I loved. I also, and I don't know if people are going to fight me on this opinion. I love the dream sequence so incredibly much in this movie. Because again, they just go all out. It's like, let's just be crazy for this like four minute sequence. Because to tell you the truth, from the original Broadway cast, this is the song I always skipped. But as a piece, and when you actually see it visually, it's like, oh, this all works. But I think I'm going to echo what both of you have already said, where I think the themes are supremely relevant. I think there is a reason why this has lasted not just 50 years as a movie, but over 60 years as a play that it consistently gets revived that uh, and is going to be remade again. In fact, there's a lot here that we can kind of sink our teeth into, I guess, uh, before we get into any type of backstory or anything like that, like Matt, what are those pieces that you think that are still like super relevant that this movie still can after 50 years? I mean, one of the major themes of the movie is sort of the price of progress and the toll that can take on a community and what exactly holds a community together, what holds a family together, why traditions are both important and toxic at the same right. time and understanding like what are the ones to hold on to pride. It does discuss religion, but not in a way that's religious. -y. that makes sense. Religion is almost like just another tradition in the uh, world of Fiddler on the Roof. I think that's sort of what makes it so universal and iconic. There's actually a famous story that I know uh, my grandfather always liked to talk about, which was, you know, Fiddler was this huge hit on Broadway. It was the longest running show on Broadway until that point and, you know, played everywhere and did every and did so well everywhere. And they were nervous at first about it playing in other countries. Mm -hmm. And when it opened in Japan, it was like, this phenomenon like the it, i hate using the term because it's so overused but it was the hamilton of its time right. in japan just like it was the thing and they go to uh, the creators go to japan to sort of um see how it's doing and i guess someone in the audience was like said to them oh you wrote this do they understand this show in america right and it's yeah, such a I, Japanese I story, that. I think, is what they said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because every every country can relate to the themes of this piece, I think. And so it's one of those things where I use Fiddler as always an example with like, you want to write something that's universal, write something that's very specific, because everyone will relate to that in some way. Like they'll recognize pieces of themselves. And yeah, in the story that is so very specific, it uh, mirrors everywhere. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so glad you brought that story up because I was going to bring it up if you didn't, uh, because I forget who is who it is that actually is quoted as saying that, like, to have a, a story that's universal, you need to be specific to your story type of thing. Trying to be too broad. Oh, I didn't know someone it, said it, that. It, it actually is. I, I know someone has said and I just don't remember who it was. Um, maybe uh -huh. it was Matt Coplick. Maybe I just have been listening. To I you. think I'm very quotable. <laughs> I've heard. Yeah. Uh, but, but, or I or I did just subconsciously steal it. <laughs> who knows? I, that's entirely possible. Whatever. It's on Wikipedia now. So it was, it was you, I think, Matt. Um, uh, but such is life. But that's what I found. It's like whether it, it's from your culture, from your family, um, even like 
gender norms, however you want to actually put this through a prism. It's like everyone has been in that situation where it's like been told, like, we've always done it that way. It's tradition. We've always done it that way. And you have to combat this. Like, what are these traditions that, yes, I want to keep and continue on to the next generation? And are which are ones that I can be like, we're done with this. We don't really need to upkeep this anymore. And that's going to be different for every person. And I think that's what I find so compelling about Tevya as a character, because it's like he bends, he bends, and then he can't bend for the last one. It's like, no, I, I can't go this far with you. And that's almost the tragedy. It's like, we want you to bend just one more time, Tevya. You just want to bend that one more time, and he's unable to. And then it's up to the audience to, uh, to decide whether that's right or wrong. I personally want everyone to be married against their will. There's actually a really great documentary that came out two years ago-ish, I think, that I watched this week uh, called Fiddler Miracle of Miracles, uh, which is great because it does a nice little overview of like the history of Fiddler and um, like some of those stories. Your grandpa's in it. Is he re- oh, gosh, I wish I had known that before I watched it. <laughs> so, yeah, he has he has two little bits. Oh, in neat. It. Where, where is he at? Which which parts? He he talked at one point about Zero Mostel. They like used a clip of him talking about Zero Mostel. Yeah. The other one is he talked about when Fiddler was out of town. Jerry Bach was saying to my grandfather how he was looking into buying a refrigerator, which in, you know, 1964 <laughs> right. okay. yeah, yeah. five was a huge expense. And my grandpa was like, oh, you hold off on a minute. You know, that's a big expense. We don't know how the show is going to do. And I guess a week after the show opened on Broadway, my grandfather was heading to the office and saw this line around the block. Yeah. And he called Jerry on the payphone and said, go buy the refrigerator. Right. OK, I remember those parts. That's great. That's awesome. Dave, I I, I don't want to uh, keep you out of the conversation. Is there anything that you find compelling about that tradition, upholding traditions? Like that's essentially, I don't want to say that's what the story is about, but it is definitely one of the major themes. Yeah, it is. It's great. I, you know, opening the movie, uh, prizing the concept of tradition, and then the whole narrative is about what it takes um, to essentially either yeah modernize, pivot. Um, deal with changing times and challenging whether the traditions uh, hold a rightful place and you get both sides which is great you know the rabbi for example is an example of somebody who's supposed to be the paragon of tradition and of structure and he's like the most moderate guy in the whole town and he's just chill so um i mean his son's not his son's a prick but like there's just something fascinating about kind of pulling apart all of the um let's say philosophical nuances of this conversation and being like, it's a masterful work to be able to put them into individual characters in the town, have them interact, you know, kind of like set the kettle and then see what, uh, what comes out. And, um, you know, at the end, I, mean, I don't know again, if this is in the stage production, but I thought it was great. That little redemptive arc where, uh, his third daughter's like ready to go. And he, he does, he does finally mm-hmm. just accept that he has to love her. But a bit, uh, yeah. he pushed pretty hard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, coming from a Korean family, this idea of tradition in the Asian culture is a strong one. Uh, Confucian ideologies uh, require sort of things like filial piety and and putting the concept of family and us before me and I. Uh, so watching that uh, in this sort of, yeah, in this Jewish story, I can understand why this would pick up in Asia really well because- uh, particularly through the you know 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, Asia itself has been working through this problem of uh, having to challenge the correct old way of doing things. You know how it always has been, and trying to accept whatever they can um, to stay relevant. So it was great. 
also uh, the czar is an asshole. Yeah. So hashtag the czar is an asshole. The I think what needs to be discussed too, and I think you alluded to this, Matt, a little bit. The tone of this movie, because it is different than what the stage play is. Like the original play stars Zero Mostel, who is like this huge personality. Are you familiar with Zero at all, Dave? No, it's got a cool name. Have you seen the movie The Producers? He's he's the he's Max Bialystok and the original producers. No, I have not. Actually, Wilder. that's right. Huh. Yeah. Original producers, uh, he's in the movie version of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Like, huge present and actually a very big actor, actually physically, too. But a uh, bit of a ham. And, like, definitely Tevye was modeled after some of his mannerisms. And I would say that the portrayal of Tevye in the original is a little bit broad. And in this one, it's more... I, I'll, nicely, someone would say grounded. Uh, maybe some other people would say, like, um, realistic. I, I never really like using that word, necessarily. So... Regardless, there's a bit of a different tone for the the two different ones. Matt, what is it that you wanted to say about that specifically? Because I think you were mentioning how some people have a certain outlook on maybe which one is better or not. So the thing with the tone, and this is sort of something that happens with the 70s, because I don't know how much you guys know about sort of the history of the movie musical, but it's kind of dying at the time that this movie's coming yeah, this out. This is the last uh, in gasp, fact, it's like really this one. Yeah. yeah, it's um because there the musicals used to be a lot different. You know, they used to be like an American in Paris singing in the rain, big body um and you know really elaborate and very much escapist fare. They were not really movies you went to to like uh see a mirror held up to you. And the 60s on Broadway, it's slowly starting to change. It's still escapist, but they're dealing with darker themes and cabaret happens. And uh, with 1970 with Company, you know, that's the first time audiences saw literally themselves on stage and they didn't like it. Uh, and in movies, it's sort of happening a little earlier. You know, we have Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate kind of coming in and just sort of blowing everything up. While that's happening, the Hollywood is trying to still make the movie musical happen. And because like Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady and Oliver do so well and Funny Girl do so well, they're like, oh, great. Like we can like it's clearly the more money we pour into these things, the more money we'll get back. And then Dr. Doolittle, Hello, Dolly and Star with Julie Andrews, like all happen one by one. And, just, and I think even Finian's Rainbow or Paint Your Wagon, one, it's one of those things where just like completely blows up and Camelot too, just like uh, erupts in flames. And so they're kind of rethinking how to do it if even do it at all and because fiddler on the roof was such a big hit on stage there was no way that they weren't going to make the movie and you can tell with this version they were kind of figuring out how to make it the fiddler that everyone loved but still kind of keep it in the motif that cinema was going down because this is the same year as the french connection and last picture show and clockwork right. orange as well so Norman Jewison, who directed it, uh, talked about I was because I was reading this. I was like, I don't know if this is intentional. He wanted to make it a more realistic movie, which for my money is not really how you want to do your movie musicals. And so there were moments like you talked about with the wedding where that works so well, where you see Topple's face, where certain scenes just hit so close to home. And then there are some numbers that I'm like, this is not really working for me uh because what what musicals do so well when or when a musical is done well uh, on stage anyway it sort of creates this fantasy world with real people and real emotions 
and it's that kind of hybrid of the two. Like that's sort of what made Rogers, what makes Rogers and Hammerstein musicals uh, evergreen is the fact that it's these iconic musicals about actual human beings, but that exists in a heightened reality. And that's hard to translate on film. And Fiddler is a case where, you know, it's very similar. It's very fluid. It's a very heavy dance musical. It's the original production was very heavily stylized. It was designed like a Chagall painting because the title of the play is taken from a Chagall painting. So the movie for me, it was sort of a clashing of ideals of trying to have this like grounded, realistic, gritty 70s movie, but also a big elaborate musical. And for my money, it was when it was more musical, when they leaned into the musicality that I really liked it. Like I... I'm in agreement with you. I think the nightmare is the best thing in the movie. I think it slaps. And it's partly because they, it's not even like cinematic, but rather they lean into the theatricality and then use all the things you can use in a movie. The quick cuts, uh, literally being in the graveyard, uh, trick photography. It It felt like Jewish thriller for a minute. And I think that's what I would loved about it. Yeah. I love it. And the and the, the color palette is great. Uh, and the woman playing Freema Sarah is just getting her life. We we just stand a comic actress yeah. who just <laughs> she's not even singing the notes. She's just screaming the whole thing. And I love it. It's iconic to me. Um, so that's sort of why the movie I remembered it being a little better than it mm. is. And it is a good movie. And I think the second half holds up better than mm, the first half for me. Yeah, because I think the best thing about tradition is how, how they kind of show you the town, they show you the community, and they kind of have a lot of actions happening on the downbeat of a lot of stuff. You know, like that yeah. bum, Boom. bum, bum, yeah. bum. Yeah, but then it, for me, it doesn't really go anywhere, cinematically speaking. They never really build to it, and the number builds. And Matchmaker, I didn't really think built to anything. Also, so I have to say one little quibble that I really yeah, yeah. hate. And this is really the, for the most part, this movie is very, very, very faithful to the stage show. They cut, I think, like two numbers, but yeah. I don't care. That doesn't matter to me. Matchmaker. So normally it's just Seidel who does the Yenta bit where she's impersonating right. Yenta to the sisters. It's just her. And for some reason they add Huddle to it. And I don't know why dramatically it makes absolutely no sense because Huddle is still kind of uh, wool over her eyes. And the point is that Huddle and Hava by the end of the number both kind of come to that realization together. Right. So for Huddle to sort of join in the fun, and then say I learned something. I'm like, I don't know. That's just a quibble. Well, no, I, I mean, the thing is, like, to, to spoil when we rate this movie at the end. Like, I, like I said, love, love this movie. Like, my quibbles, honestly, are in some of the pacing. Specific, I, I maybe you can correct me if uh, if I'm wrong, Matt. But like the, I'm saying like the ending, like 20 minutes. Does it take that long after they sing Itevka to actually finish the show? Because that feels like it goes. Nothing on. takes that long. Yeah, in the it's sh- like it feels like it goes. Nothing on. that happens in this movie takes that long in the show. Um, everything is drawn out. Uh, there's no tradition goes straight into matchmaker. Right. There's no fiddler title sequence. I was like, that is brave to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, like how West Side Story does an overture and then drags out the prologue for 15 minutes. I'm like, oh, yeah, nothing okay, has happened for here yeah, we- <laughs> 12 minutes already. Um, yes, that's it's the usually it's the reverse. Usually stage shows take their time because you have you're in the room with them and you're feeling the energy. And then the stage show is long. But the stage show is probably around the same length as the movie, give or take a few minutes, with two extra numbers and an extended ballet sequence. So that tells you okay. how they sort of draw out. Because I mean, the original Broadway uh, cast album, the original Broadway cast album, I looked, it's like, I think all the songs are like 
52 minutes or something is how it is uh it's like there's no way there's two hours of play that they've put onto this show on on stage but maybe there was yeah you can't really judge the length of a musical yeah. from its uh, from the from that era from its album because they edited everything down to fit onto an LP. If you were very lucky, you got two LPs, but I don't think they really started happening until the 70s. The score is a bit longer than as portrayed on the original cast album, but it is also has a lot of book. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. A lot, a lot of book in the show. Um, the movie's pretty faithful, but it does. It does drag on a lot longer than the stage show does, or at least I should say a good production of the stage show. Uh, Dave, what's your favorite song? I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm suddenly getting <laughs> confused because you have me w- watching uh, Little Night Music, and uh, I have the wrong songs in my oh, head. Oh yes, I. <laughs> wait, wait, Dave, you watch you you watched a Little Night Music the yeah, movie? We're, he's coming on <laughs> as a guest for this uh, for putting it together. So I'm making him watch that movie, which I feel bad about because the movie's not great. The, oh, the movie's definitely not great. Why would you do that? There's a perfectly good PBS broadcast of the stage show available. He's watched that well, too. So I had him watch that's that what first, I'm watching. and yeah. then he's going to watch yeah. the movie. Okay. So okay. yeah, I've got the stage, the one that's on an opera stage. So it's yeah, I'm getting them crossed up. I love I love that song now. Later tradition though, it's a great great piece. Are you agreeing with like the pacing issues or were those something that you didn't really feel watching this? No, I, I, I agree. And I think that as we learned Norman Jewison with the hurricane, um, the sort of, yeah, drawn out deliberate things, some of the jump cutting, some like just some of the, uh, decisions that he makes to make it, as you brought up cinematic, make this feel a little bit dull at moments, um, and confusing yeah. sometimes. I, uh, anytime they, they get into song or dance when they're in the bar, when, you know, and you know me and I love all that Russian dance. When they have the bottles and they're kicking their legs up. I mean, who has that kind of core strength? It's incredible. But um, it's great. You know, all of it's fascinating. All stuff, I'm nothing but core strength. So it's, it's exciting. It's entertaining. I got drawn in in those moments. But, you know, like at the end, I know it's supposed to be a downer and everybody's getting purged. But that slow moving thing with everybody on a barge and... You know, there's just like little things that are mm. trying intentionally to become so important. Uh, I don't know. It's weird to think about, you know, 1971 does have all these movies that are released, but are they aware of each other? Or is this something, you know, in that zeitgeist idea where everybody's just depressed and everybody wants to make something gritty? I don't know. But there's something going on in 71 where everybody has this intent that, ev- you know, all of their movies have to have this little edge. And, and Matt brought this up uh, Right. Uh, and those are the moments that I got drawn out of the film. Um, the performance are pretty good. And then, you know, our classic 71 casting issue. I mean, and nobody looks like they're in their teens. And, you know, sometimes when they start uh, telling some of the stories about how teenagers might act to each other, it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I, I get hung up. <laughs> I get hung up on stuff like that where I'm like, oh, you're 18? Shit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I did recently rewatch Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, and Lindsay Lohan is 16 in that movie, like for real. Uh-huh. So sometimes a 16 year old does look 30. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah, no, true. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Dave. Those, those girls do not really are, they're not convincing as young well, women. Well, like, wait you know, until we um, get to, to um, I don't know this because it's the machine who tells us what movies to watch, but if we ever do talk about carnal knowledge from 1971, uh, Jack Nicholson is playing. Uh, sorry a university student and he was like 35 at the time so we'll see we'll see how it goes the 70s love to do that where they where it's like you know we're chronicling you know the life of this person from university whatever like way we were robert redford and barbara streisand are supposed to be 20 and you're like in what universe when yeah 
Yes. Show me that 20 year old right here. Let's do some background here then. So Fiddler on the Roof, the movie, came out November 3rd, 1971. It is rated 8.0 on IMDb. It has a 67 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 41 critics, it's at 83%. And from 50,000 plus users, it has 92%. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. It can also be rented or purchased from iTunes and from Google. Uh, at least in Canada, it is not streaming anywhere, which is unfortunate. Its budget was around $9 million. And just like most of our other 1971 films, I couldn't get a really great rundown of like opening weekend, domestic, international. I do know that its grand total came to $83.3 million, which uh, adjusted for inflation would be like a movie making $540 million today. This was the number one highest grossing movie of the United States in 1971. Uh, It was the second highest grossing movie worldwide. Its plot description is, In pre-revolutionary Russia, a Jewish peasant contends with marrying off three of his daughters while growing anti-Semitic sentiment threatens his village. Uh, It stars Topol as Tevya, Normal Crane as Goldie, Rosalind Harris as Zeitzel, it's so good, Zeitzel, uh, Michelle Marsh as Hoddle, Leonard Fry as Model, and Paul Mann as, I think you're supposed to say Lazar Wolf, but I like to say Laser Wolf. Laser it's Wolf, fun to yeah. say. So cool. Hey, yeah, it goes, it goes in and out. People go say Laser Wolf, some people say Lazar <laughs> Wolf, and I'm like, yeah, it's whatever. whatever. It's laser fine. Wolf. Um, anything we want to say about these actors specifically? To be honest with you, this is the only role I know Topol ever did. I know that he had a bit of a career in Israel before like being cast in this. Um, and, and he would tour as Tevya on the stage productions for years, like decades after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but literally, this is the only movie I think I ever know of him being in. Uh, yeah, same. Yeah, he, he looks like he was more prominent in the Israeli film scene. Um, what's, I, I found this interesting. He was playing, I think, Tevya in an Israeli production and then was asked to go to England and he learned the he learned the play phonetically because yeah, he yeah. couldn't speak English. That's fascinating. And he, I think he was 36 yeah. when he made this movie, I wrote down. So uh, on the flip side of like 36-year-olds playing 15, he was 36 playing 50. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, so mm. he's performing this with a lot of you know, he's got a fat suit on, he's got a beard, he's got the whole thing. So, um, more props to him. And uh, yeah, and and as you brought up, it was a conscious decision. Norman Juice, apparently very controversial to not involve Zero Mostel in, yeah. in this production. But yeah, it was, it was a very intentional because, choice on his. Yeah, because yeah. he's actually from Israel yeah. and he's like living that life. So, yeah. Zero Mostel, from everything that I was told, was the kind of performer who would be brilliant for the first like two months of the run. And then he'd get bored and start doing things uh, and improvising. And when he was doing a musical, like a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which is a farce, like it totally makes sense for him to, you know, announce the uh, boxing scores from that night. But he would, he wouldn't do that exactly with Fiddler, but he would start kind of hamming it up and audiences would not respond well to it. So um even though he's very iconic with Fiddler. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think history since then has like thought of it as like his role, I uh, even though that. he's the one yeah. who originated it because a lot of actors and like Topol who did it and did it very well have sort of been able to come in. And because Tevye is such a rich role, there's it's so open to interpretation. Uh, oh, Leonard, is it Leonard Fry? That I say yes, Leonard Fry. Fry, Fry. Yeah. Fry. Uh, I did not know he was in this movie. 
I had only known him from Boys in the Band. Oh, that's right. Which is yeah. if you, yeah, if I don't know, David, have you seen Boys in the Band? No. Dave basically hasn't seen anything. It's good. Uh, uh, William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist, directed it. I, it's one of my dad's favorite movies, which is a fact that people love about my family. Um, but he's in it. And if you want to see like how good of an actor that man was, just you know, compare Fiddler to mm-hmm. Boys in the Band. It's like a total 180. Yeah. Um, he plays model and Fiddler. And then in Boys in the Band, he's, you know, a very dry, very jaded homosexual who talks, you know, with very sort of monotone. What I am, Michael, <laughs> is a middle-aged fairy queen. Like, it's just so good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was very impressed with his performance in this no, movie. He was actually and nominated for an his, Oscar, actually, for this role. Deservedly so. Very charming. And his hair, <laughs> because he wears, like, uh, the only way I can describe it is, like, a very intense Jufro mm-hmm. in Boys in the Band. Like, very tight and close to his head. To see him with like these long uh, feathery locks and feather, I was like, oh, look at you all dreaming. Right. Yeah. So this is like the, the huge background of this. And this is going to be like a hat on a hat on a hat. It's going to feel like so. This was written by Joseph Stein, music by Jerry Bach and John Williams, lyrics by Sheldon Harnick, based on the musical Fiddler on the Roof by Joseph Stein, music by Jerry Bach, lyrics by Sheldon Harnick, which itself was based on the play Tevye and His Daughters by playwright Arnold Pearl, which was based on the stories by Shalom Aleichem. So, I should have taken a deep breath before that one. Let me tell you about Shalom Aleichem first, because that was a pen name. His real name was Solomon (laughs) Nomovich Rabinovich. He was born in 1859 in this small shtetl in the Russian Empire, and had a pretty traumatic childhood because his father's failed business like forced him into poverty and his mother died by the time he was 13. But he was inspired to become a writer after reading Robinson Crusoe, uh, of all stories, um, and took the pen name because it's a variant of a Hebrew expression, meaning peace be with you. Then by the 90s, the 1890s, he was uh, at the center of Yiddish literature and his Tevye the Dairyman was published in 1894. Uh, in his 40s, like witnessing the pogroms that were sweeping through southern Russia, he was like, we're getting out of here. So he moves his family to New York City. And after a variety of health issues, um, for actually a few years, he was semi-invalid in bed, like he couldn't do a whole lot. Passed away in 1916 and is buried in New York City. Uh, what I found fascinating is that apparently his funeral was attended by 100,000 people. That's what it says. And I'm like, I don't, oh. I don't know how that works. And I'm going to assume that was mostly people of the Jewish faith, because I, uh, unless I'm completely wrong, I don't think any of his stories were actually translated into English until like 20 years later uh, in like the 30s and then into the 40s. That's kind of his overview. Do you know anything else about him, Matt, before we blow past him too much? Not really. Uh, I just know he, he was venerated uh, with, you know, his readership. Yes. He was very well regarded. That's all. That's all I really know. Now, the person I really could not find out about much at all was Arnold Pearl, who does this play um, called Tebby and His Daughters. He would actually pass away about a month after this film came out. So Arnold Pearl died fairly young in his 50s. But he had this career in film and television. Um, For television, people might know him from Naked City or East Side, West Side. His other huge claims to fame, though, were co-writing the screenplay for Cotton Comes to Harlem, which is one of the early exploitation films directed by Ozzie Davis. And Pearl would write and direct a documentary called Malcolm X uh, that would be up for the best documentary feature like in 1972. That script was then taken by Spike Lee, reworked and adapted into Malcolm X, the movie that he directed in 1992. 
So <laughs> that's how his work kind of influenced the rest uh, of films. Uh, so the musical that ended up on Broadway, Fiddler on the Roof, has like a bunch of these different influences then going on. We, of course, have the original stories. Uh, we have this play that uh, Pearl had written. And it's the early 1960s. Jerry Bach, Sheldon Harnick want to adapt the book Life is with People, written by Mark Zborowski and Elizabeth Herzog. It is a popular book, but it was really this academic study on the life of Jewish people in the shtetls of Eastern Europe before the Second World War. And some of the producers didn't think that there was anything really to latch on as far as a story for that source material. So they kind of combined that concept with these original stories of Tevya and decide, OK, we can make something out of this. Now, as far as the book writer goes, uh, Matt, I should have probably warned you about this. Do you know anything about Joseph Stein? Like, How much do you know about Joseph Stein? Like as a human being? <laughs> Almost nothing. Yeah, like I don't uh, know I, anything else he actually did outside of this. Yeah, uh, I think he wrote the book for the musical Rags. Okay. Did he do Zorba too, a, or am I making that up now? Maybe. Yeah, uh, I can look that up. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. That might have been Joe Masteroff, okay. but don't yeah, quote yeah. me on that. Um, I believe Joseph Stein wrote the book for the musical Rags, which was sort of like Fiddler 2.0. It came out in the 80s and lasted all of four performances. My big uh, to do with rags is that it was Broadway superstar Judy Kuhn's like first lead performance in a musical and it beat the musical smile for a Tony nomination for best musical that year, which I'm still angry about, even though I wasn't alive for that <laughs> Tony ceremony. You you are contractually obligated, though, to talk about smile every appearance that you make. So, oh, yeah. And, and the 1994 carousel, <laughs> they both have to come That's up right. in every performance. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Dave. These, this is very inside baseball. Uh, but, um, yes, he did. He wrote he wrote rags. Yeah. Joseph Stein wrote the book for okay. rags, which was. Yeah. So just, um, basically rags, to put it mildly, is like what would be like a sequel to Fiddler? What would happen right, when Teddy okay. and his family like came Got to America? Yeah. Obviously, yes. Obviously with different characters, but it's the same idea, same theme. Now, uh, Bach and Har- oh, so, so sorry, Joseph Stein, of course, then writes the uh, the book to the, the show, the non-musical bits. Bach and Harnick, of course, had were a bit of a team, although they did not always work together necessarily. That being said, outside of Fiddler, I would say that maybe She Loves Me is probably the other most popular one, unless people really have a love affair with Fiorello, which I don't think anyone does. Fiorello was a bigger hit at the time, but She Loves Me is more beloved now. I also have a soft spot for the apple tree. Also, you're right. Joseph Stein did write the book for Zorba. Look at that. (laughs) I actually have knowledge about something. Dave, as I continue on my novel here, I I swear I'm going to get through this. But here's here's what happened. So Harold Prince or as his friends like to call him, Hal Prince, uh, was brought in to be the producer and initially the director, but he says, no, I'm not Jewish. I don't. I think I'd be the wrong choice. So he encourages people or the producers, the other producers, to bring on Jerome Robbins, or his friends call him Jerry Robbins. He was already an established name. He's probably best known for choreographing West Side Story as well as Fiddler on the Roof. And he was Jewish. Uh, but Jerry Robbins also brings along with him a little bit of baggage, uh, because for those of you who are super into Broadway, Robbins was a catastrophic dick, <laughs> which is also how my dates describe me. I should point that out. But a genius yes. at what he did, especially as a choreographer, but was a monster. Like he was just an awful person. Um, had the weird thing about him, though, is that he was allowed to get away with that because literally, well, I shouldn't say everyone. Almost every single person who ever worked with Jerry Robbins said the same thing. He's an awful person, but I'd work with him again in a heartbeat. He was one of those people. He pushed you and pushed you and pushed you. But it's like 
the results were great. So people kept hiring him. Uh, he had extra heat coming into this, the production of Fiddler because as a closeted gay man, the government found that out. And instead of being outed, he named names during the House Un-American Activities trials. And one of those people who was blacklisted not specifically by Rob Robbins, I don't think, was Zero Mustel. So those people, they did not get along when he came on for that show. One of the bigger things that Robbins did, and there's actually a similar story about this for West Side Story, is that he asked Sheldon and, uh, and Bach of like, uh, sorry, Bach and Harnick, uh, about like the plot. They're like, what is this musical about? Like, what is this about? And they tried to explain the plot to him. And he's like, no, 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 no. What is this show about? And that's when Hal Prince broke in. He's like, I, I, it's about tradition, Jerry. And he's like, okay, great. Right, that is the opening number. And that's how we got tradition to be the opening. This musical would run for, yes, 3,242 performances, which I think is roughly eight years. Um, at the Tony Awards, it was nominated for uh, 10 awards and won nine, including Best Musical, Best Director, Best Music, Best Choreography. Uh, in fact, the only thing it did not win was scenic design. That's the one that it lost to The Odd Couple. So The Odd Couple must have had a great scenic design that year. Now, so a lot had changed between 1964 when the musical opened and uh, on Broadway and 1971 when the movie premiered. So this is what we called like uh, producers wanted to make this story a little bit more grounded. And they thought like who would do a good job? Norman Jewison. Norman Jewison, who is not Jewish, weirdly enough. But a few years ago, had won the Oscar for In the Heat of the Night. Uh, he directed that, won Best Director. That movie wins Best Picture. He followed that up with the Thomas Crown Affair, the original Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, but he was coming off of a box office bomb called Gaily Gaily, which unfortunately is neither. So he is looking for a different person to be Tevya. There was about this actor who's in the London production at the time, which was Topol. So he flies over, watches him and is like, yes, we need this person to be our Tevya. Here are some of the other names that producers floated around to be in the movie as Tevya. Uh, Danny Kaye, Rod Steiger, Walter Matthau, and Richard Burton all were in consideration, which would have been woof. There was also talk of Frank Sinatra, but I don't think that was ever anything but a rumor. It doesn't look like that was ever <laughs> went past him thinking that he could do it. So the production of the movie goes goes fine, although it was long. Uh, the only thing that really was the hiccup here was that when they went location scout scouting, it was like, Anatevka was like covered in snow. There was so much snow around all these places. And then when they went back to film... There was no snow. <laughs> so what they had to do was ship in a bunch of marble dust to make it look like snow. So most of the snow is not snow that you see in this movie. When it was released, it was uh, critically, it was greeted pretty positively. It made boatloads of money and was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. It won three. Uh, the first win for John Williams. Uh, the others were for Best Cinematography for Oswald Morris and then Best Sound for Gordon McCallum and David Hildyard. So that's kind of a very compressed history of this movie. You, you did great. Thank you. Um, anything that you wanted to add, though? Anyone wanted to add that anything, little notes of, of anything that they came across? I think I need to lie down. Uh, I don't know about the movie. I can say with Jerome Robbins, uh, Fiddler on the Roof is the last new uh, Broadway work that he ever mm. did, I believe. He was, he was mostly from the ballet world and then transitioned into Broadway stuff in the 40s, kind of marked his territory, and then pieced out with Fiddler, which was just like his ultimate like told you guys i'm amazing i'm the best i'm better than all of you and i just proved it and i'm gonna walk away now right uh he also yes he was a monumental dick uh he also wasn't a very intelligent man he was a genius and i uh talked about this on my podcast because he's worked with sondheim a bunch 
he's a he was a genius at what he did and one of the few i think i that we could really say that about in terms of theatrical directors but because he wasn't really intelligent he wasn't good at articulating mm-hmm. what he wanted especially when it came to actors he was not good at like working with actors in the like a miser technique or or you know a method acting anything like that he just basically like berated and bullied till they did what he wanted and it's there's a story in the Fiddler documentary with whoever played Hava mm. during rehearsals and she's like not saying this one line the way he wants and he just keeps shouting at her to like she does it like a hundred times until finally on like 102 she says it the way he wants and then just he walks away it's like that's not how you direct human no. beings Jerry no. sounds like a Kubrick yeah. but they all worked with him again one thing I don't want to like blow past too much here because we've been talking a lot about like uh, the drama of Fiddler and stuff, but it is a very funny show too. Like, there's a lot of comedy. This is a musical comedy for first and foremost. Oh yeah. Um, Dave, was there any of the comedy bits specifically that work for you? I think Tevia and uh, Goldie's relationship is uh, classic. And if you want to talk about Odd Couple, it's fun. I, what was the line uh, towards the end? I, I like that song's great. Where he's uh, where they're asking whether they love each other. There's a yeah. an interesting. You love me. I, I remember. Mm-hmm. I watched uh, something years ago, like a documentary. I think it was about uh, uh, couples from India and, and the concept of arranged marriages and how there's a lower divorce right. rate uh, in arranged marriages and uh, this sort of romantic uh, romanticism, romanticists ideal uh, of that love is this, and it's such an American dream thing, is this flash in the pan and, you know, you get all uh, hot and bothered and that means it's going to fucking work and... You know, the reality is it, it really doesn't work that way. And um, speaking about intelligible, I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much communication and lived in experience, all of this stuff that as you get older, you realize, you know, it, it's different than what you think. Uh, and I've gone on, I think on this podcast, but certainly in my life, hating how Hollywood will always bookend a movie as soon as, you know, a couple makes it, they they kiss and it's like, yeah, of course, happily ever after. No, uh, they're getting divorced in a couple of years. So... Um, I, I just love that idea of like, you know, um, showing both, you know, the young women are, are following their hearts. Tevye's got to figure out how he can deal with it, but then they underpin it, uh, with his, uh, his relationship with Goldie, with the classic bickering, bickering love. Um, so things like that are fun. I, I, uh, I love the bar scene when they're getting drunk. I, I, just to break in, like, I, yeah, I adore, I really adore the Tevia and Goldie relationship. Yeah, they get in each other's nerves, but there does seem to be that true love that's there. Uh, plus, the the actress just does a great lie and everything of like, do I what? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Golda, just so everyone uh, doesn't get dragged in the comment section later, not Goldie, Golda. It's a funny show. I would argue the Fiddler is almost entirely a musical comedy until the pogrom at the wedding. And that's when everything sort of turns on a dime. And the reality of uh, the danger outside of Anatevka becomes very real. But the nightmare, I mean, how can you not laugh and enjoy that nightmare sequence? It, it's just so delightful. I, thought I, would, I was just thinking about the, the nightmare sequence. I was just watching someone define mm. gaslighting. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that whole sequence uh, comes up and he's looking slyly at the camera and, uh, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, with all Mm. of my reservations about how they shot all of the asides and interaction with the audience, it's just those things are hilarious when, um, and the classic sort of theatrical 
moments where a character will come up with an idea to twist the plot and and uh, it is fun and uh, to be mm-hmm. honest it was fun enough that after the pogrom and and sort of the tension of the uh, of the purge i was actually still expecting it to kind of come back up into a lighter note in the uh, you know so uh, mm-hmm. forget all of the stuff i just said about hating happy endings this thing actually had me on this lift that i thought maybe at the end the last number will be um, them kind of coming to some kind of uh, beautiful conclusion. It, it's so dour. But, you know, I don't know yeah. if that's the stage production or the intent of the play or Norman Jewison, um, you know, bowing to the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Thinks so maybe Matt, you have a better idea because I, I definitely haven't watched this. But yeah, I, th- I thought it was fun. I, I actually enjoyed watching almost the entire thing. Um, yeah, there are little breaks where you walk out of it. But unlike some of the other drawn out movies we've seen this year, you know, I... Uh, I didn't need to take an intermission before the intermission. I I enjoyed it. I uh, right. I had a couple of uh, good chuckles along the way. Maybe the real fiddle is with the ones we met on the roofs along the way. I, I I will push back on one thing that you said, Dave, which is like you you didn't like him breaking the fourth wall. And even though I wrote down that Tevye is basically the Jim Halpert of 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 this uh, piece, I thought that was a kind of a really brilliant way of doing it of him talking to God, but he's always looking up and that's when he breaks the fourth wall. I thought that was kind of an interesting way to do that. It's not the concept of the aside. I love asides. I love breaking the fourth wall. And it wasn't the parts where he's speaking to God. I hate it when they did the freeze frame mm. stuff. You know, when he turns like, you know, he's talking to uh, Laser Wolf and all of a sudden gotcha. Laser Wolf's like, like, like zoomed. And, uh, and then he starts, you know, having his thoughts. And I was like, I, this looks so shitty. But I'm trying to be, yeah. take it in stride because it is 1971. But uh, so, yeah, not the concept, but some yeah. of those things. Yeah, it's, um, I, I feel you because the, uh, the breaking of the fourth wall, like talking directly to the audience, that is the stage show. Like he does talk to God, but he also talks out to the audience as well. And the one time he breaks the fourth wall and talks to the audience and then eventually starts talking to God, where I thought it worked really well, was when Muddle and Seidel say, you know, we gave each other our blessing, our, our, we made each other a promise and we want your blessing. And the way they sort of film it, which is like while he's having this aside, they all of a sudden from being right behind him, they're now all of a sudden like, yeah, they're like 100 yards away from him, which is, I thought, a really great way to use a cinematic technique while still embracing the theatrics of the material. Yeah. The laser wolf part, yeah, it was, it, and I think because it's supposed to be a comedic moment, that's why they do the freeze frame. It just didn't work as well. I think if maybe they, I don't know, it was sort of like trying to find this middle ground. I would say if I had like my biggest issue with the movie, and again, I said it earlier, I want to say it again. It is a <laughs> good movie. I don't, I don't want anyone to feel like I'm not, uh, am I allowed to curse yeah. on this podcast? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't want anyone to feel like I'm shitting on their opinions, but sorry, I have a really fucking foul mouth and I'm used to like just saying no, really yeah. you're in the right place um, yeah. fantastic i was holding back this entire yeah. time <laughs> um I'll, I'll go back and add extra curses actually when yeah. i edit this so. thank you thank <laughs> you and as many deviant sexual terms as we can as well right uh yeah it's it's for me what makes the movie keeps the movie for me from like really being what at the time I thought like was this, you know, masterpiece uh, is that there are bumps along the way. Like it could be tighter. It could be a little more theatrical sometimes. And yeah, like, and there are just some, and like random moments, like um, miracle of miracles, which is this really expressive and, and really joyful song is kind of undermined by really weird transitions. Uh, mm. Just like randomly being up in the birch trees and then panning down. And then it goes back to the birch trees 
but that's like where the button of the song ends. And I'm like, it was just a very odd moment. It's right. it's like it's this was very Norman Jewish in getting his sea legs on how to film a musical. And if you ever watch Jesus Christ Superstar, he does it the year later. And it's not necessarily a better movie, but he has more fun with it being a musical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there are some great film directors who don't know how to do musicals. And then there's some great uh, musical people who don't know how to make movies. So it's it's rare when you get both. Uh, have either of you ever watched the movie of Oliver? It's on my list. I have never actually seen the movie version of Oliver. No, it's for my money. It's the best movie adaptation of a stage show ever. Uh, and it's hard to really get that without knowing the stage show first, only because the stage show is so mediocre and the movie is so fantastic <laughs> that like and it like you watch and you're like, oh, this is a really good movie. And then when you see what they did with the stage show, it makes you go like, oh, my God, like they um, <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then the. the the example I like to use, if I may go on a tangent for a second, because you were talking about earlier, Kyle, about like um, opening up the songs and, and really mm-hmm. kind of, you know, not just confining this to the stage. There are times I thought they could have even gone bigger with it because Oliver has this song, uh, which in this stage show is just like the song that you that opens act two that like gets people back in their seats from, you know, intermission from the pee break, which is called mm-hmm. Oompa Pa. And it's the character of Nancy just like singing in a bar for four minutes. And it's, you know. She sings Oompa Pa for four minutes and you're like, okay, yeah, that pleasant little song. And in the movie, they take it and they move it to later. And what it is, is that it's when Oliver, she's made a deal with Oliver's grandfather to get him back to him at London Bridge by midnight. But Bill Sykes, her boyfriend and Fagin have him kidnapped in a bar, like sort of held hostage with Bill's dog. And it's like quarter to midnight and Nancy doesn't know what to do. And she's like, how do I need to get him out of here without them noticing? And she hears somebody in the corner singing Oompa on their accordion. And she <laughs> then uses it as an excuse to build up the entire bar into this frenzy. And like while she's constantly watching the clock. So it adds stakes. It gives it a structure. And by the time the song ends, the bar is all singing Oompa But Bill realizes that Oliver has gone and sees Nancy running out of the bar with Oliver and runs after them. So it's an example where they you take this stupid, stupid song that does absolutely nothing and you just make it work for the plot. And it's what Oliver, the rest of that movie could be mediocre and it would still be in my top five of movie musicals. But <laughs> luckily, the rest of the movie is fantastic. But yeah, Fiddler for me, like it's a little too respectful. And like I would have I think the nightmare is the one time where they really kind of like Push make it, a choice. Right? And it's for me, for my money, I think it's the best number in the movie. Yeah, it, it, it is a lot of fun. It injects a lot of life, weirdly enough, because it's about death, but a lot of <laughs> life uh, into the movie at that point. Um, yeah, uh, I am. Like, I'm not so precious with my musical theaters. Like you can't like change song order or even cut things if they just don't really work. Like uh, me to go on a tangent, but there's uh, the prom. If you've all seen the prom that was on mm-hmm. Netflix this year. But there's a moment there. There's a song that's like about promposals that ha- happens in that music i'm like this was obviously a scene change song like the, the only reason for this song to be here is so that they can move some scenery around in the background and then progress the plot because there's no reason this this number has to be in here it's i have i have a lot of thoughts on the prom movie yeah. uh the what makes it what makes me angry about that song in the movie is that the whole point of that song gets cut because mm. they cut the last section off there's a whole gotcha. other like chorus that they just cut out and that chorus is the point of the song and okay, so i was like so oh wow Ryan Murphy, you really don't know how musicals work i got right. sorry i got very angry watching that movie yeah yeah well you should have um <laughs> the i don't like Ryan Murphy. 
<laughs> Doesn't everybody love James Corden? Uh, there's two last things I just want to get to. One is I think uh, something that the documentary that I watched here this week brought up that I had not really ever considered, but I think it is a really intentional from the source material, but it's a really important decision that Tevye only has daughters um, because it makes him breaking with tradition mean a little bit more because it's their decision. He's giving them agency that perhaps a son would not have had the same emotional resonance to. So Dave, I don't know if you have anything to add on to that at all. No, I mean, I think it's definitely an important, I mean, we talked about how the writer lived um, a lot of these experiences. It is fascinating that around this time, these sort of liberation, I mean, I, I think that underneath the patriarchy, women, of course, have wielded a lot of different types of power, but on a social scale, uh, yeah, I, you know, the idea of dowries and uh, people like in China, when they had right. the one child mandate, people would actually abort kids because they were going to be female. Like the, the conceptual idea of what, uh, you know, a man versus a woman uh, are overpowering. So having five daughters is definitely a crucial plot point uh, for Tevye to have to, um, uh, you know, make decisions that he loves his daughters, but his tradition is telling him that he's got to treat them as objects, essentially, uh, you know, to barter with uh, either for his own good or to set them up with, with Laser Wolf. I know I think it's it's fascinating to see good writing at challenge and, and this is more true for Broadway and theater than it is for film uh, to be more nuanced and subtle in its attack on culture uh, to try to just poke at you to be like, hey, you know, uh, you're fucking this up and here's why. And they can uh, do things that are ironic mm -hmm. and do things that are sarcastic and you can, uh, yeah, you could have fun with it on theatrical stage and overplay things, uh, maybe even to hide it more in plain sight. Whereas uh, I feel like film, either as we learned, you know, with the Hays Code and the fucking FBI and all the propaganda, or just the fact that you can rewatch the exact same film over and over again and suddenly, you know, kind of like pick at it. Uh, film's a lot more scared to, to attack these problems until this year, apparently. This year, shit, they're going after it and they're trying to hit everybody in the face. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a mm -hmm. crucial part of it. It's not just tradition, it's challenging. I do love that uh, Tevya has standards for the men that he wants his daughters to marry. So while like he does adhere to the traditions of how marriage works in the in the community, he it's not just like anyone who has like mm -hmm. like you know a good job. He's like he has to be learned. He has to be this because as you said, he does love his daughters and he thinks highly of them, mm -hmm. and he raised them to be, uh, you know, strong, smart women and. I do love that that ends up biting him in the ass because now they have agency for themselves. Right. Uh, and like, I think part of the reason why Tevia does sort of bend so much is that he has a little respect for that. He's like, you know what? I like, I respect that you know what you want in this world and that you are, that you're going for it. And you're pushing back. And I, and I think too, like something that was again, pointed out in the documentary, which I only kind of like half understood is I think the, the third daughter, the reason why he can't necessarily bend the full amount uh, in that, moment is because it's she's not just marrying someone that he doesn't want it means that because he is christian like she has to literally leave right. the faith like that is what she's doing she's like i'm leaving becoming being jewish and mm -hmm. that is just a bridge too far for him to like sign off on because that's too many traditions that we're going to be losing at the same time oh. well in a way it also feels like she's abandoning them yes. right. and he, that's it feels like a like she's spitting in their face and that's sort of, you know, like, I can't just wipe it off and, and hug you like that. You've now insulted me. 
Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. But the love overpowers it in the end, and there's a bittersweet ending there where they won't be closed off to her forever, which is right. good. There's a great line I wrote down where he says, uh, what is it? Love. It's a new trend. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh. right. Do you have a favorite daughter? Oh. Oh, that's Probably a good question. For me, Seitzel. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think she has the most... She she definitely gets the ball yeah. rolling. Yeah, she's the most charismatic. Just get the ball rolling. I I have a soft spot for Huddle. I like a girl right. who talks back. Um, <laughs> You're right. When when Perchik's like, I'm a great tutor. Huddle has one of my favorite lines when Perchik says, uh, "I'm a really great teacher," and she goes, "I heard the rabbi who speaks highly of himself only has a congregation of one." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's That's sassy. Great. Um, I mean, if I was like to, to be like super nitpicky. The other two daughters don't really ever do anything, so it's I don't know why we actually need them in in the in the show specifically, but that is really just a minor quibble. They're in the book, exactly. They're, they're in the book. That's why they're yeah. there. Um, so, last thing uh, is uh, the actual idea of tradition. The, the one thing that got really plain, I felt, was like there seemed to be this uh, comparison that was going on between like uh, adherence to, to tradition is very similar to the phrase of like just following orders uh which is like this tradition of, a, of our community of our family of our of our religion uh is not all that different from these constables over here they're like doing it because well they told us to i guess i'm just really broadly asking like are, uh, do do any of the other themes in this movie speak to you or or are they resonant for you I mean, tradition is not necessarily something that I like have an emotional response to. I am mm -hmm. technically of the Jewish persuasion, but I am of a persuasion of um, Jews that are not necessarily very Jewish. My <laughs> right. I'm a fourth generation Manhattanite, uh, you know, New Yorker and specifically Manhattan uh, in like the 40s and 50s, which is when my family was sort of really kind of established, established themselves here. It was not really uh, fashionable to be openly Jewish. Uh, mm -hmm. You had like the West Side with like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but my family has all been on the Upper East Side, which is very much like a yuppie, waspy culture. So my family has always kind of been very closed off about that. And we've embraced it a bit more now, but like we're not kosher. We, you know, all holidays have always just been uh, an excuse to get together. We don't really do any of the things, but you know, Would I have you say my own, that like, then you're like Jewish ish. Is that what you're trying to yeah, say? Yeah. I, what I always say is I'm Jew ish. Um, that's, <laughs> that was always what I say. So thank you for leading into that. Uh, yeah. So for me, traditions are more just like, um, I don't know, a way to kind of have structure in mm -hmm. like a day to day of way of living. I feel like with Fiddler in the same way of, um, how, people sort of harp on the old times it's just it's sort of this idea of like well it got us to where we are and we're still standing so clearly this works or like there's something to it and if we change things like who's to say that we won't all come crashing down tomorrow so there is a fear about it and less of a you know this is the right thing to do and what you want to do is morally wrong it's just a fear of you know if we stop doing this one thing who's to say that the sky won't fall um right yeah there's there's some musical, like some uh, YouTube musical. I can't remember what, but it takes place like during caveman times. And it's a it's a comedy. And they have one character in the community whose like job is to hold up the sky. And it's this person whose arms are just up the entire time throughout all the musical. And someone's like, well, what if you took your arms down for a second? And everyone's like, what could happen? What could happen? And it's that's sort of like the uh, the sketch comedy version of Fiddler to me. <laughs> right, right. 
How about you, Dave? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, without getting too abstract, yeah, I like, I like how Matt framed it. I, I think that there are these semantic distinctions between how we use the word tradition to mean, yeah, like a, a formal process through which we gather a social identity, and then the word tradition meaning sort of this uh, rigor. And, you know, we can look at all of religious uh, absolutism hiding behind the word tradition to just be right. hate speech. So I wonder if, you know, a lot of the great writing that comes out of very turbulent times, and, and we've discussed this with uh, many of our things like, so anything written after the Second World War, anything written during the Russian Revolution, anything written, you know, anywhere where people mm -hmm. have suffered greatly, um, you have that immediate human uh, philosophical need to understand how other people are capable of such evil and how I'm supposed to survive this. And what isn't working, as we see plainly in this film, in this story, is uh, just doing the same thing every day because I don't have power over how uh, the Russian's going to come and, and burn down my house. Um, mm -hmm. So there are such valuable parts of tradition that are uh, sociological. So, you know, how we can interact with each other without hating each other. There are traditions that underpin that, uh, you know, social understandings, whether they're taught or implied. But when it becomes rigor and where it becomes sort of hateful because and judgmental, you know, we get a problem. And uh, that's why, yeah, I love, I love stories like this where they challenge the viewer to mm -hmm. go home and you know, maybe talk about how it's silly that this happened, but maybe in the back of their mind, they'd be like, you know, you know, I, I've been uh, thinking my neighbor's really annoying with the way they mow their lawn. And maybe I need to just uh, fucking cool it because if they want to go diagonal and I go straight, maybe diagonal's fine. You know, I, I wonder if there's, uh, you know, there's, there's the great power of writing stories, uh, you know, cut your lawn however you want. I think diagonal is the first step towards fascism, Dave, <laughs> and I'm going to die on that hill. We're done here. The machine has told us that we need to wrap up here. So uh, one thing we do like to just point out, this is kind of like what we thought here in the year 2021. I want to just talk about two critics of the time when they saw it in 1971. Uh, Roger Ebert said this. He gave this three out of four stars. And he says, I suppose Fiddler on the Roof is just a movie that lovers of the stage play were waiting for. And since Fiddler is the most popular stage musical in history, that's something. But would it be heresy on my part to suggest that Fiddler isn't much of a musical and that director Norman Jewison has made as good a film as can be made from a story that is quite simply boring? Fiddler on the Roof has been around a long time, has become an institution and has added some good songs to our memories. But in the process, it's become so polished, so packaged, so distanced from the real feelings that inspired the original stories that it's become just another pleasant product of American entertainment industrialism. So why do I give it three stars? Because what it does, it does well. It's just what the public wants. I doubt if they'd like a better Fiddler more. So the, the Marvel films of, uh, of the time there, Dave. That's how uh, Evert liked to see it. Uh, Pauline Kale said this. She says, Tevya, the shtetl dairyman pull, uh, pulling his wagon is a myth-sized version of a limited, slightly stupid common man. As Tevya's daughters marry and disperse and the broken family is driven off its land and starts the long trek to America, his story becomes the story of the Jewish people who came to America at the turn of the century, what they left behind and what they brought with them. The movie offers the pleasures of big, bold strokes. It's American folk opera, commercial style. It's not a celebration of Jewishness. It's a celebration of the sensual pleasures of staying alive and of trying to hang on to a bit of ceremony, too. 
So I find it interesting that both of those kind of mention the fact that like this is way too consumerist uh, as as their interpretation of of this show because it was like a big Broadway hit coming to the movie screens. It, it sounds like young critics tried to be critical. With Roger Ebert, that man gave three and a half stars to The Phantom Menace. So just like take <laughs> his review with a grain of salt. Um, <laughs> Pauline Kael is actually one of my favorite film critics, even though she can be a little, um, I think, overly harsh. Yes, I, I agree yes, with that. I, I, I think that Fiddler is a brilliant musical and a pretty good movie. Uh, I think that while Norman Jewison wanted to make it like more realistic, he also took a lot of like the the grit out of it. Like I, mm. Topol's Tevia is so charming, but I found there was very little bitterness to him or any kind of edge. Yeah. And that's something that I'm sure Zero Muscle had in spades was like this weariness of um, no when when he says no, uh, it's not not enough that you make me poor. I have five daughters. Well, like I can live with that. What do you have against my horse? I can imagine he says it to God in the movie. He's like, "What do you have against my horse?" And I can imagine yeah. Zero Mostel like yelling that to God. Yeah, um, Zero was always this like performer. I found like yeah, he could be like this buffoon clown, but I could always feel like there was he was about to snap at someone yeah. <laughs> underneath it all. Like he had this weird energy about yeah. him. There was a heat about him. Um, yeah very very heated performer and i i could have used a bit more of that in this movie and i think that would have made pauline kale and roger ebert maybe shut their mouths a bit more <laughs> if that had been there uh well let's ask the question that we always ask on this show does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant uh matt what do you think about those two questions i'm gonna throw you guys for a loop here i'm gonna say yes to both i think mm -hmm. it is very culturally relevant because i think fiddler always will be and i think it does hold up because it is a very well-made movie i am looking forward to a remake though i will say that Mm -hmm. uh dave how about you yeah i think that's where i'm at too it's fun to watch uh as long as you're not overly critical about uh trying to keep it in modern parlance maybe but it's actually quite enjoyable um and yeah there's an after everlasting theme of challenging traditions uh there are little moments for example how they, like all the men are very violent to their women it's kind of hard to watch now so as we hopefully get even more woke maybe this will date um it is a little bit jarring like when uh the tutor grabs uh hoddle and they're or like um, even model mm. like some of their interactions are <laughs> a little dated uh but um you know it's 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 mm. still there it's still it's it's fine it's still fine i think with it being a like a quote-unquote period piece that i think it's still we have to take it in in that kind of frame too yeah it's uh, not century gonna... russia <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think, well, I'm going to run the board because I'm going to say the same thing for both of these questions. I think it holds up. I still think it's culturally relevant. You'll see so when I rate this movie in a moment. But uh, just to feed off on that, like on stage, this has been revived over 14 times for major productions. It's performed all over the world for like student productions and amateur productions. Uh, if I Were a Rich Man has had covers made by major singers, uh, has been sampled by people like Massive Attack. Uh, this year, in 2021, it was sampled for Flo Millie's song, Roaring Twenties. This is where I pretend I know who that is. Sunrise Sunset has also been covered by major singers uh, all the way up to the year 2018. And in 2011, Sheldon Harnick wrote additional lyrics so that the song could be sung at same-sex weddings. Uh, by the way, uh, when this goes up, uh, Sheldon Harnick will be celebrating his 97th birthday very, very soon. So <laughs> Get it, Sheldon. Yeah. And Fiddler's referenced in Election, by the way, for anyone That's who's right. ever watched that movie, Election. It is, yes. Uh, famously, the movie that Dave also did not like. But no! <laughs> I know, I know. Broke my heart. Um, 
And <laughs> Dave laughs at this because like every person I've ever had on as a guest that finds that out also has the same reaction. Uh, in May of 2020, in May of 2020, it was announced that MGM was going to remake this movie. Although I don't like saying that because it's like just another adaptation of the same source material with librettist Stephen Levinson, famous for Dear Evan Hansen, writing the screenplay. The director is supposed to be Thomas Kale, who directed the miniseries Fosse Verdon and the filmed version of Hamilton. Uh, Matt, do you have any response to that possible film project? Uh, I'm interested to see how they go about it. I was not the biggest fan of Fosse Verdon, so mm-hmm. but I do like Dear Evan Hansen. I do like Hamilton. So we'll see. Uh, to quote RuPaul, yeah. I can't wait to see how this turns out. Yeah, my my unpopular opinion is that I actually very much love Hamilton, but uh, I did, was not a huge fan of the direction of Hamilton for that film production. But that's me being yeah, the film. The film version didn't do it for me. I actually yeah. my hot take is um, you can find the B-roll footage from the Broadway production online. And I think yeah. the B-roll footage is much better. Yeah, there you go. Do you think there's a part for James Corden in the movie? That is what Dave, Matt, and I thought about this. What do you think? You can send feedback to Kyle and Dave versus the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in another apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. Uh, there will be a link into the show notes of this episode, and you can support for as low as a dollar a month. So let's get to rating this movie. I always feel bad, Matt, uh, when we have guests on. Um, I'm going to ask you what you would rate this movie out of five, but technically your rating does not matter. But what would you rate this movie out of five? <laughs> How dare you? I know. I rate, well, I guess since my rating doesn't matter, uh, there's a lot less pressure. Out of five, I would give it. Am I allowed to do points? Like yes. Yeah. Okay. I would give it a healthy three point seven. Okay, three point seven. Dave, what would you rate this movie? I think uh, I probably. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go with a four. I feel like uh, I did really enjoy watching it, and uh, but yeah, it's belabored mm-hmm. in some spots, so it's not a perfect movie. But in reflection, it's so far my favorite movie of 1971. Is that possible? Well, yes, yeah. very much by far your favorite <laughs> movie as uh, your ratings go. So here, here's where maybe I'm going to blow some people's minds. Um, like I really love this movie. And I think I, I am a little bit influenced again because I've never seen a stage version of this. Mm, yeah. And I have a feeling my rating is probably going to go down when I do. I'm currently going to rate it a five. I'm actually giving it a perfect score wow. because I loved it that much. Never bored, loved all the music. And even with like some minor quibbles here and there of like pacing and um, certain ways they film things, it was like, I still love this movie by the end of it. But we'll see. We'll see if that actually holds up over time. Dave, that does mean that that's going to average to 4.5, which, yes, just on the pure raw uh, number, will enter our list at the number one position, unless you want to make a play to put it lower. But I think we've both said that we probably have liked this the most of everything we've talked about so far. Yeah, we're gonna. I mean, it was nominated for an Oscar. We'll see if we'll watch more Oscar nominees. Well, mm-hmm. if the machine will let us, and uh, we'll let them duke it out without us putting any prejudice on it. You'll also see the two different personalities of me being maybe too positive and Dave being <laughs> maybe too negative. Uh, the average right now, Dave, your average ratings are go to go to one point eight. And mine's a 3.0. I so stand by that it. is how we have. I, I stand uh, by my here. 1.8. Yeah. 
let's do this. Uh, let me push this button. See what we're going to watch here next week. I'm pretty sure we know, since we've talked about the other four nominees, we're probably going to watch the Best Picture winner of the year 1971. I am correct. Next week, we're going to be talking about The French Connection. Awesome. So we're going to be talking about The French Connection next week. Matt, do you have any hot takes on The French Connection? William Friedkin, it's quite yeah. good, but I like yeah. Boys in the Band better. <laughs> <laughs> I like The Exorcist better, too, I think, probably. But we'll see. Oh, Exorcist. Um, yeah, I forgot about The Exorcist for a second. It's good. French, French Connection's good. It, you know, it's you watch it and you're like, oh, this is very 1971. <laughs> right. That's that's what I'm feeling is going to be the case. Thank you so much for, for coming on here, Matt. Where can people find you online if they want to keep up with you? Well, uh, if they want to find me, the only social media I have is Instagram. Uh, I very much enjoy it. So you can find me at Matt Koplik, uh, M-A-T-T-K-O-P-L-I-K. If you liked hearing me talk on this podcast, thank you. And you can listen to my other podcast, which is uh, Broadway Breakdown, which you can find pretty much everywhere uh, that podcasts are available. There's one that it's not. Uh, there's like some app for Android that I can't get mm. it uploaded to. I forget the name of it. No but, one uses that app. We don't yeah, care. No one uses it. Screw them. Fuck them. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's really it. Just Instagram at Matt Coplick and then Broadway Breakdown if you want to listen to the podcast. Nice. Perfect. What would you do if you were a rich man, Matt? Oh, I would uh, find a way to make myself even richer and eclipse all the kajillionaires in America so I can make my own political influence in this country. Yeah, that's what I would do. I love that. I also like the fact in that song that he basically wants to make like an MC Escher house. <laughs> like that. It's like his, his staircases make no sense. Oh, yeah. It's a total fuck you to like anyone who dares to enter his home. And that's right. we love that. He's trolling his community. I personally want everyone to be married against their will.